0: series, and if you've ever been on a road trip, you know that there's great value in having a navigator uh, with you, or at least um, having someone who can switch driving for you for a while, especially if you have stops that are on one end of the country to the other. Uh, you may or may not have seen the classic American film, Vacation, uh, but you know there's a scene where he drives off the ramp into the desert because he falls asleep at the wheel. So Sometimes it's just good to have someone else come and drive for you uh, so you can get some rest, you can uh, focus on some other things, or you can actually just control the radio, uh, whereas <laughs> it's hard to do. And so I'm excited this morning that Joe Huggins, who is a part of our pastoral advisory council. Uh, <laughs> wow, they never do that when I preach. That's awesome. That's, that's, uh, that, yeah, that, oh, it's going to make me want to take a longer break. So, um, <laughs> Uh, Joel is part of our pastoral advisory council, and uh, I have assembled uh, five men to, to sit around me, to pray for me, to give me uh, advice and encouragement, uh, and just to help drive the car sometimes when it needs to be driven. Uh, it's also allowing me to do some different things uh, for some long-term strategic planning, which is just a real blessing. And so please uh, welcome our friend Joe Huggins this morning as he brings a
1: word. Morning. Can you hear me all right? Okay, good. You would be speaking to us this morning, Lord. I pray that, that we would be able to dig into your word and faithfully adhere to it, Lord God. And I pray for myself, Lord, that uh, that you would give me strength to handle your word appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm, I'm going to, I have a responsibility here, right? And my responsibility is to treat the word appropriately. Did you know you have a responsibility here this morning? All right. Have you ever heard of the Berea? I'm going to give you the Berean charge, right? And in, in Acts, it says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So my responsibility is to deliver the word. Your responsibility is to hold me accountable to it and make sure that everything I say is true and accurate. Okay? So, I want to do a quick recap, right? We This is going to be Romans chapter 3, so we had Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, basically the essence was that uh, it, it was sin city, and it's the idea that mankind suppresses the truth of God. And when we do that, it gives rise to all kinds of sin. Terrible, terrible kinds of sin. And then chapter 2, he said, was twin cities. And this is that As people under sin, we are full of hypocrisy and self delusion. Those are are pitfalls that we can fall into very easily. All right, so now we're going to talk about Romans chapter 3. And Romans chapter 3 is one of my favorite books in in Roman or chapters in Romans. So it it was fun to be able to talk about it. And one of the things you'll find about Paul, one of the things I love about Paul, is he is so repetitive. He talks about the same thing over and over again, just in case you missed it the first time, okay? <laughs> and we're going to do a lot of that today, but but I love that aspect of Paul. He makes sure that, that he always comes back to these fundamentals, okay? And I want to start with a story. You may have, uh, you may know about this, you may not, but starting in the 1820s, there was a guy who was born in New Jersey but moved out to Sacramento, and he had a Vision that turned into a passion, that evolved into an obsession. Right? He he uh, really had this idea that the transcontinental railroad would completely revolutionize uh, the United States. Okay, and so uh, he started off pretty uh, pretty low key, and it was an idea. And as that idea kind of overwhelmed him, it turned into an obsession, and he ended up being called crazy as part of his name. So, his name was Theodore Dehone Judah, but most people just referred to him as Crazy Judah. Okay, And he would go from Sacramento to Washington DC constantly in the 1840s, uh, 50s, and 60s trying to get support for this Transcontinental Railroad. Now the big thing about the Transcontinental Railroad is whoever was at the end of the Transcontinental Railroad would benefit the most. So his passion was seeing it be Sacramento. There were lots of other ideas that had it going north into Oregon or south uh, to, to you know maybe uh, the southern part of California, but he really wanted it to be Sacramento. That's where he put down his stakes. And so <coughs> the reality at the time was uh, the railroads went all the way to St. Louis, Missouri. And from there you had to decide how you were going to get the rest of the way to California. So if you elected to take a wagon train, it would take you four to six months or longer depending on the time of year, right? If you did it at the optimum time of year, four to six months just to get from St. Louis to to somewhere along the east coast or the west coast. If you traveled by ship, right, that means that you'd have to go all the way down around South America and back up. It's 15,000 miles by ship, okay? But fairly effortless, right? Someone else is doing all the work. That would still take you three to five months. Okay, so it might take a month off of your trip, but that's a long time on a boat. It's a long time. Now, there, there was an alternative because there was about a 20-mile trek through Panama. If you wanted to stop in Panama, cross Panama on land and then go go up, that would, that would uh, take that 15,000 miles down to 5,000 miles. However, that malaria was the problem, right? So if you were going to cross, 10 to 20% of the people would get malaria. The death rate was was enormous for Americans trying to cross Panama before the Panama Canal. Uh, And that would uh, take you at least two months. It's a month to get down there and a month to get up from Panama to to, uh, California. So what they were able to do, though, with the train, once the train was, finally connected is it took one week. You would travel day and night, right, but you would go all the way from St. Louis, Missouri to Sacramento. So it took all of that time and condensed it down into one week. This was a huge deal, right? But there was one problem that stood in the way of the transcontinental railroad, and they all knew it. And so Judah, crazy Judah, who would go back and forth from Sacramento to Washington, D.C., had scouted all along the Rocky Mountains trying to find some kind of passage. And His wife was an artist, a painter, and so she would paint the scenes of all of these various places, and he had a 90-foot-long map that he had made that he had sewn together, six feet wide, 90 feet long, that he would roll out, and then she would put her paintings along the way to show what it looked like, the scenery, along this trail. But the big problem he had was he still hadn't found an effective place to cross the Rocky Mountain. So then one day in 1860, he met Doc Strong. And Doc Strong was a um, was a trapper. And he had gone all over the Rockies and he said he had a place that uh, that Crazy Judah needed to take a look at. And so he took him over there. And uh, there was another person that was with him who was the the engineer, the designer of the railroad, understood all, the, all that was necessary for the tunnels, for the bridges and things like that, because trains could only handle about a 4% grade. Anything steeper than that, the train wouldn't be able to make it up. All right, so they had to find something gentle enough for them to navigate through the mountains. And it turns out there was one place that seemed ideal, and this was in 1860. And it was around a place called Donner Lake called Donner Lake, as you may remember, the Donner Party some 14 years earlier, had tried to get through in a wagon train and had gotten stuck for the winter because of an avalanche, and they resorted to eating each other. Right? Terrible, terrible thing, and it was considered cursed ground as well, but nevertheless, Doc had taken Judah there and said, this is the only navigable way through the Rocky Mountains, which was considered the Great Divide was the Great divided, divided East and West, okay? And so, they went ahead and committed to using the Donner Trail around Donner Lake, and they brought in um, Greenville Dodge, who was the engineer, and he was able to, to develop a plan to actually navigate the whole area with that 4% grade max. So just nine years later, they finished the railroad. United States Congress committed so much funds to it that they were able to to finish it. So two railroads met in the Utah Territory to drive the final spike that created the railroad. One from Sacramento and the other from St. Louis. They met in Utah Territory. I'm sorry, Utah Territory. Now, (coughs) that created three of the wealthiest families in America for next century. of the wealthiest families in the world. So the great divide separated the East from the West up through the Civil War, but we likewise face a great divide. No man can build bridges through it, though. Okay? This is something that, that's beyond us. So let's talk about the first point. first point is that sin truly is serious, and it separates us from God, and no one's exempt. Now, is, this is kind of a problem because sin in our culture is very uh, trivialized, okay? So we're going to talk about that a little bit, but if you look at verses 9 and 10 in chapter 3, it says, what then will we conclude? And Paul was just making an argument about how uh, basically Jews and, and Gentiles, one is not better than the other, right? We're all... Faced with the same struggles, the Jews aren't really uh, at any advantage, right? And he says, What then shall we conclude? Are we Jews any better? No, not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And when we say under sin, we mean bound by sin, we mean slaves to sin, not just under the curse of sin. But Jews and Gentiles alike, we are all bound by sin. For as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And this started in Leviticus, but it's mentioned in Psalms. It's mentioned uh, elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, Everybody understood. There is no one righteous, not even one. Okay? So we're all under the sin. No one is exempt. Just in case you thought maybe you were exempt, you're not. I'm not exempt. this body that we have is full of sin I remember when I was a kid I I saw a family circus cartoon that I really liked this little boy praying by his bed he said Lord forgive me for all my sins today and the ones I didn't have time to commit (laughs) it is a good one because we're not going to go through a single day without digging ourselves deeper into this pit of sin right and there's nothing we can do about it but verse 20, if we jump there, it says, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So sin really isn't there to punish us. Sin isn't there to discourage us. Sin, or, uh, Sorry, the law isn't there to punish us. The law is there to demonstrate what sin is. To help us understand what sin is. Right, And none of us are going to be declared righteous in God's sight just because we observe the law. Let's say that you're good at observing the law. I doubt you are, but let's say for argument's sake you are. You're not going to be declared righteous in God's sight because of it. Right, so how's that working out for you so far? It's not. So the purpose of the law is there to expose sin, to define sin, to make us cognizant of sin. It's not there as a, as a, 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 a type of uh, goal for us to meet. Because we can't do it. We're incapable. That's how we are. So let's talk about sin for a second, because we don't like using that word. It's, it's politically incorrect, right? When we talk about sin, we usually wor- use words like mistake. OPA, gaffe, slip, miscalculation, error, blunder, misstep. None of those are true. That's not what sin is. Sin is an act of the will. Right? It is open rebellion and defiance to a loving God. It is surrender to a depraved and compromised flesh. But sin is not a mistake. Okay? Now, that may have brought us to the sin but we need to understand the seriousness of sin and as such sin can't be corrected for simply by cleaning it up or hiding it right we can't wash it away we can't say I'm sorry and it's taken care of sin is there it's a stain it's a stain on who we are so illustration Hot sauce. but nevertheless you can't get this out once it's there it's there right now we've created oxyclean and all sorts of other stuff that, to help us along but you by yourself cannot get rid of this this shirt is not clean anymore once we've committed sin once we've engaged in sin it's there and it says that by observing the law we have no power to get rid of that right so let's just think about that shouldn't drift too far down and what we need to understand we're going to talk about this in in a few weeks right verse nine says are we any better no we're all under sin we're all under the slavery of sin But in Romans 6, 16, it says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. These are our two options. Are we becoming slaves to death through sin? Are we becoming slaves to righteousness through obedience? And we're going to come back to that again. We'll also come back to that in a few weeks because, like I said, Paul's very repetitive. I appreciate that. So, verses 21 through 23, it says, But now a righteousness that, from God, apart from the law, has been made known. Apart from the law, because the law is only there to expose sin, right? To which the law and the prophets have already testified you read throughout the old testament you'll see that the prophets have already talked about this righteousness to come it's finally here now and paul is able to explain it fully and point to it clearly this righteousness from god not something that we can earn it's from god alone comes through faith in jesus christ to all who believe there is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We already talked about that before. No one's exempt. But this is good news, right? This is good news that God has provided a way for us to achieve that righteousness again, for us to be clean from the junk that we've got on us, right? We have been slaves to sin. Now he's offered us righteousness apart from the law. So, point two. God has made a way through Jesus to satisfy the law and the regal, legal requirements for sin. Now, if, if you watch legal shows on TV, like I do, you know, you, you, you see a lot of these terms. So I want to go over a few legal terms for us because Paul uses them, and it really helps us. But first are two ideas. One is that there is a, a penalty aspect to disobeying the law, right? And the penalty aspect... Uh, basically is talking about the consequences that have already been determined, but the consequences for being a criminal of this type, right? You commit this sin, this is the type of punishment you're going to get. We all understand that, right? But then there's another aspect, and that's called the pecuniary aspect, and the pecuniary aspect basically is talking about, well, what's right and just, wh- what is a right and just type of compensation for the uh, the person who was offended, right? So. There's the the criminal aspect, and then there's there's this other aspect of compensating the victim, right? And so both of these are going to be addressed. Paul's going to talk about both of them. So, 23 to 26, it says that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. For God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He, meaning God, did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, God had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he, God, did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, now, so as to be just and to be the one who justifies those who have faith in God a lot of words in here, but the basis is God is just, right? We don't talk about God being fair necessarily, but we talk about him being just. And what he has done demonstrates his justice, okay? So there's three terms. One is justification, right, which also comes from justice. And justification is God declaring you and me not guilty. He has the ability to do that. He's declaring us not guilty or righteous. Just because we've got sins, he's declaring us not guilty. But he also talks about the mechanism there. The next is redemption. Right? Redemption is the idea of paying for something. Okay, Jesus paid the price for our sins already. Right, And it talks here about the fact that he not only paid it for sins to come, but he paid it for the sins that had already been committed once and for all, for everybody. And he did this through the sacrifice of atonement that he made. And the sacrifice of atonement was his blood. Everybody understood, you've got the penalty side, you've got the pecuniary side. And the pecuniary side said that it cost blood because life is in the blood. It cost blood when we offend somebody, God or man, and that was the sacrifice, okay? But there's another thing in there. It also says that Jesus bought us with his blood. We were slaves to sin. We were under slavery to sin, under its authority. He bought our freedom from that as well. Now, we're going to have to talk about whether or not we're exercising that, but nevertheless, it's there. And the third idea is propitiation. That's a big word, right? But it's another legal term that uh, Paul uses here. And it's the removal of the punishment. It's the relenting of the punishment, the mercy, because the bill has already been paid. We were already slated to be punished. And that was rolled back by the price that Jesus paid. So we have justification, redemption, and propitiation, all in these three verses, all right? So what was the penalty for sin, right, for this crime? Well, we're going to talk about that in chapter six, but we also talked about it earlier that it's death. Right? The penalty of sin is death. And the way Scripture presents it, it's removal from God. Eternally or on earth, it's the same. It's distance between us and God. It's that great divide that we were talking about. So what is the restitution for sin? The restitution for sin, again, is looking at that idea that, that God demands for those violations right and so that's the blood offered through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us now 1st Corinthians 520 2 Corinthians sorry 521 says God made him that's Jesus who was without sin to be sin representing all of our sin past present future so that we might become the righteousness of God so the sin that we have and scripture further says that He throws this out and gives us a new shirt, a clean shirt, Christ's shirt, which is righteous, blameless, and without spot, right? Man, that's awesome news. That is the good news, right, wrapped up in, in that thought. We have this sin problem. We are criminals. We are guilty. And God freely grants us a reprieve, calls us righteous, takes away our punishment, as long as we trust in that blood that Jesus spilled for us, right? But what's even cooler to me is that God loves you and is devoted to you and he doesn't have to be. God's our father. He is devoted to you. He has done the work to provide you the opportunity for forgiveness and righteousness. So we are faced with a choice. Are we going to, in turn, be devoted to him? Or are we going to do our own thing? And, and, and if there's nothing else that you hear from me here, hear this, right? If we aren't in obedience, we are in rebellion. That's really what it boils down to. It's not just that we have the opportunity to be clean. Now we have to decide. Are we going to be devoted to him? Or are we going to to disregard that and do our own thing, right? So we're either in obedience or we're not. We're either clean or we're not. We've got to stop thinking in shades of gray because Scripture doesn't do that for us. All right, so point three. God saved us from sin, and we can't take any credit for it. This is the next thing. Right, we talked about earlier the fact that we can't follow the law and be declared righteous. It just doesn't work, right? God made the way for us, and we can't do anything but accept it or reject it. But we can't take any credit for the righteousness that comes from it. So let's look at verses 27 to 31. Where then is boasting? Well, it's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? Because you can't do it. No, but on faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Well, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles as well? Yes, I tell you Gentiles as well, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by that same faith. Do we then nullify the law, by this faith, not at all. Rather, we uphold it. The Gentiles didn't even have the law, for crying out loud. Right? The Jews were blessed with the law. The law was intended to show them how fa- how far short they fall, not to, to condemn them, not to spur them on. It's a, it's a goal, sure, to reach, but it's really to illustrate how powerless we are against sin. And Gentiles have the same problem. We've already covered that. So we're just making sure that we understand that because God gave us this gift, we have absolutely no basis to take any credit for it, right? What's interesting about this, uh, to me, is, you know, God's freely given righteousness is really at the heart here. God's trying to make sure we understand that his righteousness is free. It cost him an enormous amount, but it's free to us, right? It cost him his one and only son. He frees us both from the power of sin and the punishment of sin at the same time. But it's only when, and this is the big uh, big requirement here, only when we put our faith in the work that Jesus did at the cross. Right, That's the only thing we can do. We put our faith in it, not belief, faith. Faith is stronger than belief. Faith is something you can trust in. Faith is something that you actually orient your daily life around. Belief is just something in your head. Okay? And we're talking faith. We're talking something a lot stronger. So, our faith is what allows and empowers us to obey the law. That's, that's the final part here. Is obeying the law going to get us to where we want to go in righteousness? No. But the faith in Jesus Christ allows the transformation that gives us the power to uphold the law. Well, what's the law? What what is the law? What did Jesus say the law really boiled down to? There were two things. Love God, love man. Right? Everything falls into line if we can do those two things. Sin prevents us from doing those things because we love ourselves. That's really what, what it all boils down to. We love ourselves. God wants us to love God first and love man. If we're able to do that, we're upholding the law. That can't come naturally. That comes through transformation, sanctification, only through God. Okay? So, our role is simply to accept the free gift that God gives us, but to exercise this new freedom. He's given us freedom, and we have to exercise it. We have to exercise it from sin while we're upholding the law. And it's not that we're really trying to uphold the law. It's that we're trying to love God and love man, And this all falls into place, right? So we need to remember what we talked about in Romans 6, right? It says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness, which is it going to be? These are your two choices. Just sitting down isn't an option. Are you going to offer yourself to sin, which leads to death, or are you going to offer yourself to right, to uh, righteousness? Uh, I'm sorry, to uh, obedience, which leads to righteousness. So we need to recognize that obedience to the word is paramount here, right? Even Jesus said, how are people going to know that you belong to me? There are two, re- two things he said. One is your love for one another, which is upholding the law, and the second is that you obey my commands. Those are the two things Jesus said. People will know that you're Christians. They'll know that you belong to me if you can do those two things. If you can love one another and you can obey what I've told you to do. So obedience is key. And we don't talk about obedience a whole lot in society. Because obedience, I don't know, it it treads on our free will, right? (laughs) But we're already obedient to something. We're either obedient to the flesh or we're obedient to Christ. You're already obedient to something. All right. So, we've been set free from slavery to sin, but are we actively obedient to the word of God? That's really the nuts and bolts here. So our sin has created a chasm, a great divide between us and God, and we can't bridge it. But Jesus came to do that. God sent Jesus by his blood. That cross provides a way across so that we can restore a relationship with God. Remember, sin is not a trifle. Sin is extremely serious, and a holy God cannot abide with us when we allow sin to be between us. Okay? So basically, Jesus bridged that gap and reunites us with God, and the questions to us are, First of all, the Bible says you have sin. That sin separates you from your God, the God that loves you and has a plan for your life. You are guilty and there's no debate. What is your plan to deal with it? Think about that. If you haven't already done it, you've got to have a plan to deal with the great divide between you and your creator. The second question is this that comes out of Out of what we've talked about here. God is offering you forgiveness and freedom from slavery as he's taking care of this issue. But he demands, rightly so, and expects our obedience in return. Are you obeying the word or are you obeying yourself and living in rebellion? Right? We can all look good on the outside. But this is a question for us to really consider in our hearts. Have we really surrendered to the Lord and are obedient to him? Or are we really just trying to do our own things? And by extension, living in rebellion to God. It's really that crystal clear. So I'm going to pray for us real quick. How are you dealing with the sin that you have in your life? And are you really living in obedience or are you living for yourself? Lord, we thank you for today and we thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, it penetrates, it convicts, Lord God, and it draws us to you. I pray that we would be digging in and digesting your word be seeking out your truth, that we would be understanding your heart and your will for us, Lord God. I pray that you would speak to us as we're going through Romans, Lord God, that you would speak to us about the truths that we've uncovered, and that you would help us to have a heart that seeks after you, that we would obey you in all things. And Lord, that we would accept the gift that you've given us. We would stop our struggling and our striving, and we would accept your gift God, and rest in the freedom that you've given us. Thank you for your Lord. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to pay that price for me that I couldn't do on my own. I was powerless. Speak to us, Lord, and give us strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, Joe, for sharing that with us this
0: morning. And I want to invite you this morning to consider the questions that he asked.